Well, one of the unexpected outcomes of this global pandemic is that we're all getting pretty good at legalism. We're all getting pretty good at working out how to officially obey the public health orders whilst we're actually doing some things that, well, get fairly close to the edge of what is in and what is out. So, for example, we see in our society that whilst you're supposed to wear masks when you're getting your hair cut, some barbers appear to be handing out espressos so that their customers can slowly sip on the drinks as they're being groomed. And perhaps there have been a couple of trips across the border into Greater Sydney or vice versa on, in the grounds of compassionate care. Early on, it also seemed that there were a lot of people taking their families all around New South Wales checking out possible real estate, which got locked down after a while. This whole pandemic has definitely brought out our natural tendency towards legalism. But it's something that the Jews have been excelling at for thousands of years. Uh, I've shared this story with you before, I think, but it's such a beauty, I'll give it to you again. Uh, when I went to McDonald's in Israel, uh, I ordered a Big Mac meal and a chocolate sundae, but the person serving me said to me that I had to order it in two separate transactions. I could buy the meat, tra meat product in one transaction and then I could, in a separate order, get the dairy product. And that is because of the kosher food rules that require the separation of meat and dairy. And the reason is that it says three times in the Old Testament, you must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And so that's why you have to have meat separate to dairy when you're ordering a McDonald's. Now, even though legalism gets a bad rap, it is strangely attractive, especially when you're good at appearing to keep it. If you can know and keep the 613 commandments in the Torah, then you can feel self-confident in your strength and in your abilities to be law-abiding. And what's more, you can form alliances with um, others who are strict law-keepers, and you can exclude others who appear to break or flaunt the law. The law can provide a convenient way to include and exclude people. It helps you work out who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. But even though God's law is good, it doesn't describe the heart of God. If we wanted to know about the heart of God, we'd speak of his steadfast love, the Hebrew word chesed. And related to his steadfast love is his mercy. God's love, God's mercy is at his heart. And whilst he gave his people the law so that they could know how to live as his special covenant people, the law wasn't the main game. The main game was mercy. And because mercy was a core quality of God, it meant that Jesus was on a collision course with the Jews. And that's what we see today as we head into Matthew chapter 12. And it all starts with some snacking disciples. Verse 1. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. All seems pretty innocent, doesn't it? Jesus' disciples snack on some grain because, well, because they're hungry. 
But importantly, it's the Sabbath. It's the one day of the week when God's people were to rest and not to work. Now, given that these guys, these disciples, were not grain farmers, you'd think, well, that's not work, that's just grabbing a snack. But not according to the strict Jewish people called the Pharisees. Verse 2. For we read that some Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. See, these do-gooder legalists were shocked to see that good law-abiding Israelites would be brazenly breaking the law by grabbing some grain. And what's more, these Israelites were the disciples of this man who was claiming to be the very leader of God's people, the Messiah. So how will this leader of God's people respond to this legal challenge? Look at verse 3 and 4. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. Jesus shows them at this point that there's a time in the Old Testament when David's companions broke the law when they needed the strength to be able to serve their king. I mean, the law mattered, of course, but serving the king mattered more than keeping the law. And then Jesus gives a second example. Verse 5. He says, And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? It's legal for the priests to work on the Sabbath because serving God matters more. And then verse 6, we see... Jesus says, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. See, if the strict Jewish Pharisees were going to be offended by the Sabbath breaking, then they'd even be more shocked by the fact that Jesus says that he is greater than the temple. He's saying that he's greater than God in their midst, which if it's true, and it is, And if they didn't like that fact, it would be to them a horrible blasphemy. So if it's not true that God in their midst, it would be a horrible blasphemy. But if it is true, then it changes everything. And what's more, Jesus says in verse 7, But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Jesus makes it very clear here that mercy is more important than offering sacrifices. And so he quotes there from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 6. See, the legalistic experts in the Jewish law gave their heart and soul to ticking all those religious boxes. But the Pharisees didn't know the heart of God. And that's the reason that they didn't recognize the Son of God himself. And this is the very thing that would lead to the most shocking moment in the history of the universe. The brutal execution of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And it's because Jesus is the Messiah that he's more important than the Sabbath. Like the companions of David who served their Messiah or or the priests who work on the Sabbath to serve the Lord of the temple. Verse 8. Because... 
The Lord, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath, Jesus said. Now, if you don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, then you won't believe the excuse that he gives for his disciples. And those Pharisees didn't. Which is what leads to the next shocking episode, verse 9. For we read that then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he'd say yes, so that they could bring charges against him. The Pharisees want to see if they can get Jesus to go on record in front of all the synagogue people with the same stuff he said about the Sabbath. And when they see Jesus' interest in a man with a serious disability, they think, aha, let's get him. And as Matthew notes, the Pharisees were hoping that they could bring charges against Jesus. They saw him as a threat. They saw him as a challenge to their worldview and their way of life. And so the Pharisees wanted to charge Jesus with a crime. Now Jesus never shied away from conflict, especially when he wanted to do good and to teach truth. And so in verse 11, we read that Jesus said, well, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. He gives them the right answer, doesn't he? But it's not the answer that they believed to be true. But Jesus courageously puts his words into action. Verse 13, he said to the man, hold out your hand. And so the man held out his hand and it was restored. Just like the other one. Jesus performs a truly amazing act of compassion. As a disabled man regains the full use of his deformed hand. You would expect the people in the room to let out a gasp. And I'm sure many who were there would have done just that. But others were not happy. For we read in verse 14 that the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Jesus brings life to a man's hand. And the Pharisees plot to bring death to Jesus. And so it begins to escalate. The law lovers want to kill the author of life. And so verse 15, we read that Jesus knew what they were planning. And so he left that area and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. He left there, he kept healing people, but he said, shh, be quiet about who I am. There was going to be a time when everyone would know who he was, but for the time being, he wanted that news to be kept quiet. And that's because of who he was. He was the suffering servant. The suffering servant from Isaiah 17 and 18. We read that this fulfilled, this is what Matthew said, this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. 
He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Matthew stops to quote at length a very important part of the Old Testament. It's not the first time he's quoted from Isaiah. There's stacks of times throughout Matthew's gospel he grabs this bit of Isaiah. But this lengthy quote at this very point in the gospel is really important because it shows who Jesus is and it shows how he works. God clearly loves Jesus. You see that? And it's clear that he pleases God. And God, and this is important, God has put his spirit in his servant. This is important, especially as we come to some tricky bits in a moment that otherwise are really hard to understand, it seems. God has put his Holy Spirit in his servant and he will bring justice to the nations. But what's he going to be like? He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. Jesus is not going to be aggressive or arrogant. He will be jump, uh, humble. He won't push his weight around. He will be gentle. And through this humble and gentle, spirit-empowered Ministry. He will victoriously bring justice to the world. In verse 21 we read, And his name will be the hope of all the world. He will bring hope to the world. Jacob, I think if you remove the, this out of the fallbacks, you might be able to push it a bit harder as well. Back where we were. He will bring hope to all of the world. This is the mission of the Messiah, the work of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And it's not just hope for the few who were there in Israel from 2,000 years ago. It is hope for all the world, even for the 21st century. Because without Jesus, there is no hope. Well, next we see a single verse healing account. Just one verse, verse 22. We read, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. Imagine that. Imagine someone who could not speak at all and also could not see. And Jesus walks up to the person and says, Be healed. And they can see and they can say wow what an incredible miracle that must have been and the crowd was amazed verse 23 and said could it be that Jesus is the son of David the Messiah I mean of course it could who else would do this kind of stuff they've been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come and those who knew the Bible would recognize exactly who was in their midst 
But the spiritually blind, law-loving Pharisees disagree. Because we read in verse 24 that when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. In other words, they say, Jesus, you are satanic and you get your power from Satan. Right. That seems legit. <laughs> but it's really stupid, actually, as Jesus will point out to them. For we read in verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and he replied, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he's divided and he's fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. In other words, why would Satan want to wreck his own kingdom? That's just stupid. And then Jesus gives another reason to challenge the thoughts of these Pharisees. He says, and if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? Exorcists, he says to them. What about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too. So they will condemn you for what you've said. You're saying all those pharisaical Jewish exorcists, they are satanic as well? Ooh. Jesus rebukes their claim that he is satanic. But he does show what it means for him to be using the Holy Spirit's power. For in verse 28 he says, But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. If it's the spirit, not Satan, that's empowering Jesus, then it means that the kingdom of God has arrived among them. But why? How does that work? Why do spirit-empowered exorcisms point to the fact that the kingdom of God has arrived among them? There's got to be something in the flow of logic. If A and B, then C. What's the B that's sort of there? Well, it all comes back to the quote from Isaiah. Because if God has put his spirit upon Jesus, then it means that Jesus is the spirit. Sorry, start again. If God has put his spirit upon Jesus, then it means that Jesus is the servant of Isaiah. And if he's the servant of Isaiah and that's arrived, then it means the kingdom of God has arrived. That is the logic. And because that's the case, that God's put his spirit on his servant, which means that Jesus is the servant, which means the kingdom of God has arrived, therefore they need to take Jesus seriously. And if you want further evidence that it's actually the spirit of God and not the spirit of Satan, think about this, verse 29. Jesus says, For who's powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? It's only someone even stronger Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Only the spirit of God can win over the spirit of Satan. And so Jesus basically says, get on board. Verse 30, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Get on board or watch out. That's what Jesus is saying. 
If you're not with the person that the Spirit of God is empowering, then it means you're actually with Satan. So Jesus is saying to them, take your pick, the Spirit or Satan? The Spirit or Satan? Which one will it be, door A or door B? Take your pick. You've got to choose one or the other. You follow the Holy Spirit's servant or you follow Satan. Which one? Choose very carefully. Which leads him to say in verse 31, Jesus says, So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. There's that verse. The verse that someone asked me a question about for this week, even though I hadn't even got to it yet, it's that hard. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be that hard when you understand where it fits into the whole flow of what we're looking at here. Basically what he's saying is, you are rejecting the Holy Spirit when you reject Jesus. And if you reject the Holy Spirit and Jesus, you're turning your back on forgiveness from God. And if you say that you think that the Holy Spirit is actually Satan, which is what they were saying, how do you reckon that's going to work out for you? If you go through life saying, oh, Spirit, you are Satan, do you really think that you'll be able to take upon yourself the forgiveness that comes from the cross? No chance. People reject the Spirit when they reject Jesus. And that is serious. And here's another warning that is similar. Verse 32, Jesus goes on to say, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. That's an even trickier verse. Uh, how is it that you can get away from, with speaking against the Son of Man, but not the Holy Spirit? That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Well, the best reason I... I've come across this week in preparing this, and I think it makes sense, is that in this particular moment in history, uh, the Son of Man has not fully received his kingdom yet. Uh, all that has been promised in Daniel doesn't happen until the Son of Man comes, and he comes on the cross. And that hasn't quite happened yet, obviously, in the history of this time, as he's speaking to them there. Maybe after that has happened, at that point, if you speak against the Son of Man, and you continue to do so, then it'll be in the same situation as the spirit. Uh, that's the best answer I could come up with so far. But it, it, don't, don't tr sort of try your luck. Think, oh, I'll just, for this week, I'll just speak out against the son of man and reject him, but I'll stick with the spirit and see how that goes. Bad plan. But the main point of this is that the Pharisees, those legalists of the first century, if they, left their whole, if they lived their whole life rejecting Jesus and rejecting the Spirit who empowers him, they're not going to get the forgiveness that comes from Jesus' death on the cross, are they? They will miss out on that. If they keep saying Jesus is satanic, if they keep saying that the Spirit in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is satanic, they cannot expect to be forgiven by the one they reject. That is the so-called unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is permanently rejecting Jesus. And it's exactly what the first century Pharisees were risking as they committed themselves to believing that the Spirit was actually Satan. 
It's about as big a rejection of God as you can get. And that's what those Pharisees were at risk of. And you can see it by the way that they lived. Verses 33 to 35. Jesus says, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give account for on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Their evil acts are coming from their evil hearts. And when it comes to judgment day, this will be the thing that will get them. They won't get away with spending their whole lives saying that Jesus is satanic. They won't get away with plotting to kill the Messiah. They will truly be on the wrong side of history. And it's a warning for them. But it's also a warning for people today. We live after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of Man, has come and his kingdom is here. But still, to this day, many people reject the the one who is the Messiah. People reject the Son of Man, the exalted and ascended Jesus. Uh, They may not blatantly say Jesus is satanic, but they certainly don't believe he's the saviour. And if they spend their whole life rejecting Jesus, they will not be forgiven. And that's true also for any of us who are listening here now, here in the building, or you at home. You can't get to Judgment Day and try and negotiate. I wasn't too bad, or I was fairly good, or there are people much worse than me. The window of opportunity is limited. And nobody knows when your time will end. So if you're waiting, wait no longer. Well, it seems some of the religious rulers were impressed by Jesus, but they wanted a little bit more proof. So we get to verse 38 that says, On one day, some religious teachers of the law and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. Which seems fair enough. It's like, hey, Jesus, quite impressed, but can you just do something just to confirm that you're someone special, that you've got this authority to be doing all the stuff you're doing? But Jesus says, verse 39, Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And I take it that that is a no. Jesus addresses not only those individuals right in front of him, but more generally, he speaks about that generation of Israelites, all the Israelites that he's been talking about up to that time. That generation has already started to reject Jesus as Messiah. They've got him right there in front of him. 
And yet they want more proof. More proof than Jesus doing the stuff he's already been doing? Really? And Jesus says, the only proof that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? Verse 40 says, Jesus said, for as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. What do you reckon that might be talking about? Talking about his death and resurrection. The only sign that he's going to give them is the empty tomb. That's it. Now, if you're looking for something miraculous, how are you going to get anything better than that anyway? And Jesus says, that's the thing that you're going to get. But then he segues from the sign of Jonah to the people of Nineveh. Remember who they were? They were the one that God said to Jonah, hey, go over there and tell these people in Nineveh to come to repent. And Jonah said, no, look, I'd rather go for a swim in the whale. Well, kind of. And then he ends up telling them and they end up converting in great numbers just from the preaching of a very reluctant preacher. Jesus basically says all they needed was to, to hear that there was this message from God to repent and that was enough. So verse 41, it says the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they all repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. They just had Jonah, who didn't even really want to go and give them any evangelism, but he did, and they really worked very well, all right? Jesus is there, and they're like, oh, give us a better sign. It's like, really? And then speaking of famous Gentiles who turned to God, what about the Queen of Sheba? Verse 42, Jesus says, The Queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But now someone greater than Solomon is here. But you refuse to listen. If Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba will be happy to come to the Lord just by preaching alone, then how do you reckon the Israelites will fare on Judgment Day if they are there standing face to face with the Messiah and they say, nah, show us something else. Give us something more. But the thing is, it's going to get worse for these rebellious Israelites. Verse 43. It says that when an evil spirit leaves a person, Jesus says, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding none what's that got to do with the other bit well let me keep reading it'll make sense then it says that evil spirit ah i will return to the person i came from so it returns finds its former home empty swept and in order and then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself and they all enter the person and live there and so that person is worse off than before that will be the experience of this evil generation What's that talking about? Jesus is saying, I, the Messiah, turn up. I cast out some demons. And yet there's no real repentance here. There's no real follow-on. And so that demon goes out and says, comes back and says, Oh, look, oh, nothing's moved in. Instead, I'll get my mates and we can all have a big share house here. And so it actually ends up being worse than before. This evil generation has not only not recognised who Jesus is, They've actually rejected Jesus completely and it will be worse off for them than before. 
They might have had one demon, now they're going to get seven. Because after all, this is the generation that executed their Messiah. Their Messiah. Their Christ. No wonder Jesus calls them an evil generation. Of course. The greatest rabbi of all was killed by rabbis. The king of the Jews was crucified by Jews. Doesn't get any more evil and satanic than that. But as this chapter comes to a close, we see a final incident where Jesus' mum and brothers want to see him. Verse 46 and 7, he was speaking to the crowd and his mother and brothers were outside asking to speak to him. Someone said, Jesus, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. Who's outside? Mary. It's her brothers. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my... Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's an interesting reply, isn't it? I don't think Jesus is deliberately saying he wants to disrespect his family, but it certainly has prompted him to help um, help people understand how to become part of the family that matters most to him, his spiritual family. Because he says to join Jesus' family, just do the will of God. God wills that all people would follow Jesus as Lord. And if you do that, You'll be part of Jesus' family and you'll be forgiven. That's all you need to do. And it's all that anyone today needs to do. And the problem is it just seems a little bit simple. To be forgiven, to have that certainty for eternity, you just need to trust in Jesus as Lord. You just need to follow Jesus as Lord, as King. It's that simple. But the problem is that legalism is just so much more obvious. Choose some rules. Keep them or do a reasonable job of keeping them and you feel like you've got something tangible to point to. But mercy is so much better because legalism kills, but grace saves. We gravitate towards legalism, but we need to release ourselves to live in grace. After all, we need to put our trust in the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Amen.